Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. This is Dennis, and today I am with J.R. Pickett. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good, Dennis. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. Awesome, awesome. I'm glad that you're here um, because... Uh, we're talking about something that has come up in the news very recently, and that's excited delirium. But uh, if you wouldn't mind just doing a real quick introduction yourself. Sure. So I'm a former paramedic and now ER physician and EMS medical director. I've uh, worked uh, for a long time with several EMS agencies, uh, most recently City of Austin, but uh, going back to uh, time in Ohio as well. Uh, and also I've uh, worked with law enforcement. Uh, I was the, I'm the tactical EMS chair for the National Tactical Officers Association uh, and I've worked with uh, law enforcement tactical teams uh, since about 2006. Awesome. Awesome. So my first question is, like, what is excited delirium and how is it just different from a guy being a jerk? Well, that, that, that's a great question. And, and even now that term excited delirium is, has fallen out of favor. Um, so this is a uh, this is a term that has been used up until recently to describe people who are exhibiting a, a disturbed state of mind. Um, so ex exhibiting delirium, um, violent behavior, fear, panic, uh, but also a physiologic elevation. So elevated blood pressure, elevated heart rate, elevated body temperature. Um, and there, there's a, this condition here uh, has been described since the mid 1800s in the medical literature. It's gone under various names like Bell's mania or acute exhaustive mania, lethal catatonia, agitated delirium. Um, and in the uh, in 1985, um, like right at that the height of that crack cocaine epidemic, there were some researchers, um, uh, Charles Wetley and David Fishbane, who dubbed this condition excited delirium. Um, and it was, uh, they noted that it often co-occurred uh, co with cocaine use, but not at levels of drug concentration that would be typical for a cocaine overdose. Um, but still this condition goes, you know, it goes way back. I mean, we're, we're talking well over a century and a half, um, that we've seen people in, in this type of a state. And uh, unfortunately the death being associated with this, uh, it, it's described to be as high as 10% mortality rate. Um, um, even when nothing is done, but frequently these patients, um, they are, uh, they do die in in uh, proximity to restraint, in proximity to medical care, to uh, being uh, restrained by police uh, and by medical providers. So this uh, this term, uh, it's got a lot of attention in law enforcement literature. Now, when I was a paramedic back in the 1990s, uh, that wasn't uncommon where somebody who's exhibiting that kind of a state would be hogtied and they'd be thrown in the back of a police car and taken to jail and, and they would die and and the police would be uh, accused of uh, uh, would be accused of, of killing them of uh, restraining them improperly uh, and res restricting their breathing um, and. Uh, the, the FBI had paid some attention to this in, in these in-custody deaths and they and had recognized that that this is a police uh, it's not a police emergency. This is a medical problem that's presenting as a police emergency. Uh, and so police are frequently the first 
people to to contact these folks because they are uh, often acting um, bizarrely. They're acting violently. And yeah, when that's going on, the cops are the first ones you want to be uh, contacting folks. But uh, to their credit, law enforcement agencies have been recognizing that this really is a medical emergency that requires medical treatment and therefore summoning medical aid in, in instead of just trying to take somebody into custody and take them to jail for uh, for acting this way. The concern about the term excited delirium is that it's it's an imprecise term. It, it doesn't. It's not an actual diagnosis that exists. There's not a an ICD-10 code for this. It's, it doesn't exist in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual uh, uh, or the DSM-5 uh, for uh, mental health conditions. Um, and it's it's inconsistent. There's no consistent diagnostic criteria. No consistent uh, description of uh, what, what what how do we diagnose this patient. But in general, we do we do come into contact with uh, with these patients. And if you're in EMS for any period of time, if you're in emergency medicine for any period of time, then you're going to come across somebody that's that's acting this way, that is is behaving bizarrely, that's that's agitated, uh, that's really amped up. Somebody that can't be de-escalated, that can't be uh, uh, redirected, uh, that won't not only not follow commands, but may not even be able to give you any useful information about who they are or, or what's going on with uh, with them. Um, and in an uncontrolled environment like the field, you can't, uh, like they're, they're not, not contained. They can easily hurt themselves. They can easily run into traffic. They can, uh, uh, we've seen folks that are running down the street naked and bashing through windows and fences and cars and, um, and uh, it can hurt themselves, could potentially hurt somebody else uh, at, at that time as well. And so they have to be, uh, they have to be contained. Um, and this has led to some, uh, some amount of controversy as folks like psychiatrists and folks who work in hospitals and, you know, even emergency physicians sometimes saying, well, you know, do, do, do you have to restrain them? Do you have to uh, do this? It's like, well, it's a different, it's a different, um, let's see if I can say that. It's a different equation. When you have somebody who's agitated, who is contained within a room in a hospital that you know has walls in it, has one door, has a large staff that is there and is able to prevent escape and prevent them from hurting themselves. Different story entirely when they're outside, not contained and, and can move in any direction. And uh, that requires different methods to... Uh, to to bring them into uh, control, bring them into in, in, not into custody so much because that that implies that that judicial aspect, mm-hmm. but uh, to bring them uh, under control to where you can evaluate them properly and treat them. Right. Uh, so the American College of Medical Toxicology, as well as uh, the American College of Emergency Physicians, the National uh, National Association of Medical Examiners, they're now rejecting this term "excited delirium syndrome." Um, because of concerns about its use as a justification for excessive use of force uh, and that. But the uh, they all recognize that there's a need for a clear diagnostic criteria and, and a clear term to describe people who are in this state, which is very much a real thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean you definitely have to feel for the officers and, and people in the field, the paramedics or whomever. Um because they have to make a decision between this person who's acting insane and potentially hurting themselves or hurting somebody else in their mania 
Um, and you have to essentially take sides and, you know, one side or the other is going to suffer for it, you know? So you have no choice but to act. Well, I think in, in cases that we've seen recently, and, and of course the one that, that is recently on everybody's mind is the Elijah McLean case, uh, which was just a truly catastrophic outcome. An innocent young man lost, lost his life. Um, and uh, I think that we can all agree that that was a preventable death. Uh, and, and there's uh, there's a lot of work right now to assign culpability in, in how that came about, because when somebody loses their life, particularly at the hands of the government, um, mm-hmm. in some in one way or another, then we as citizens uh, say, hey, how do we who do, who do we hold responsible? How do we prevent that from uh, from occurring again? And, and I'm with you. I feel for I feel for everybody in this case. Of course, no no one more so than Mr. McLean and and his family. Um, but uh, I, I know the officers and the paramedics and firefighters who are involved in this case. I, I'm sure every one of them would would go back and and wish to change how that that case unfolded. Unfortunately, it is complicated. Also, a lot of the discussion on how we manage patients that are ex- exhibiting this syndrome. Because like you say, we can't just let them run, you know, run around. And there are plenty of reports of people who died with this syndrome who never came into contact with police or never came into contact with uh, any medical providers or anything like that and died nonetheless. Right. Um, and so it's um, it's a matter of... can. What can what can we do in the safest way possible to protect somebody from further harm in the in the state that they're in, and uh, at the same time, um, is 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 there a more thoughtful way that we can go about it that uh, that may prevent the outcome that we saw in the McLean case and others like it? Right. Um, just one quick clarifying question. So, you know, in my line of work or my least line of former work. It wasn't uncommon to deal to come upon a combative patient because we were in combat, and that's kind of the mental state they were in. And now we're adding narcotics on top of it, and that can um, complicate the situation a little bit more. How is that different than you know this excited delirium or or whatever term that they want to call it now? Uh, so that's a great question. And the uh, um, when we look at causes of this hyper agitated state, um, they, they are many, uh, whether that's a mental health issue, an exacerbation of bipolar disorder or uh, schizophrenia, or as, as a result of uh, intoxicants with stimulants like cocaine or methamphetamine um, and uh, or, or a result of alcohol. Um, we, we see that as well. But there are other medical conditions that can cause this as well. Issues with the thyroid, like thyroid storm, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, can cause severe agitation. Uh, head injuries can uh, can do that as well, uh, which, of course, very, you're know, very familiar with through your combat experience. Um, and the uh, so, again, with the, this state, there's not there's not much in the way of diagnostic criteria. Anybody can be combative. Um, right. But if we're combining the, that delirium, that combativeness with this elevated, this hyperadrenergic state, this this mm-hmm. adrenaline surge with this high blood pressure and temperature and heart rate uh, and so forth uh, altogether. Um, and for the EMS provider, it's, it's very difficult to sort that out at that particular time. 
Um, now, I, of course, in resuscitating trauma patients, both in the field and uh, and in the hospital, uh, frequently we get folks, we have people who are traumatically injured that come in who are combative, and that combative state is preventing appropriate thorough assessment is preventing ancillary studies, preventing us from helping them. And then we have to do something. We have to um, sedate them. Uh, and oftentimes with uh, patients who are trauma patients, we're concerned about significant physiologic changes that with sedation may be even more dangerous. So we sedate them, we intubate them, secure their airway, protect that, uh, keep them sedated and paralyzed so that we can complete all the ancillary studies, take them to the operating room if, if uh, necessary. Um, and so it's one of those cases where you sometimes have to act before you can, uh, b before you can fully assess the patient for yep. uh, their injuries. Now there may be some obvious ones. I, you know, I remember a, a, a trauma patient coming in the emergency department, and um, we were doing all the trauma team stuff. And, and every three minutes or so, this patient would scream, "Bloody murder!" And it's like, "Wow, what, what, you know, what's going on?" And then and they'd stop. And what we realized was they had a broken humerus, and somebody placed a blood pressure cuff on that humerus. Oh, yeah. And so every three minutes, it's it's you know, if you're wrenching an injury around or, or something like that, and the person's getting agitated, and they're and uh, like that's not inappropriate. That's a, that's, right. <laughs> that's a result you're of what you're doing, him. Yeah. right? <laughs> um, and uh, but you know, absolutely, it can be very difficult to sort that out sometimes. Um, the uh, yeah, I think as we saw in the McLean case, as the police were asking him, well, like, what kind of drugs have you taken? What have you done? Again, it's very difficult to to see why that person might uh, uh, might be in the state, and and um, you know, in that particular case, I think it was just a result of. Um, that interaction with the police, you know, he's walking down the street, got his headphones in, uh, and then some, the, you know, the police grab him. He's, he's, uh, uh, says like, you know, I don't, I don't like being touched and, and, uh, uh says something to the fact, I don't know if he's on the spectrum or, or something like that, but, but he didn't react well to it as many of us wouldn't. Um, right. but then as that interaction escalated, uh, then, you know, then the behavior escalates and, and unfortunately just spiraled into this terrible situation. Right. Right. So uh, kind of know a little bit more about what it is and at least generally what you see um, just in your own experience. You know, have you seen patients like this? And maybe if you could tell us a little bit about how they acted and like how it set them apart from the others. I've seen countless patients like this, both in the field and the emergency department. And uh, what uh, you know, my uh, my uh, I guess my litmus test for him is is can I engage with you? Like if I ask if I'm asking you questions and you're able to answer those questions for me, then you're not hyperactive delirium with severe right. agitation. Yeah. Like like you're 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 able to think. You're able to 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 think logically and. Um, uh, whereas if the person I've seen a lot who are just, they're talking unintelligibly or screaming unintelligibly, or maybe just, you know, screaming phrases, you know, repetitive phrases, something may or may not have any bearing on what's going on with them at that moment, uh, then that ten and when I'm trying to make contact with them and, you know, introduce myself, um, you know, use the, uh, the late night DJ voice to try to bring down that, that, uh, agitation and see if I, see if I can get them engaged with me. If, if I can't get them to engage at all with me, 
um, then that's a clue to me that there's something going on that we're probably going to have to, we're probably going to have to like fix that agitation first before we're able to, uh, to really fully evaluate, uh, the patient. I mean, we evaluate as much as we can, but, um, the, uh, if they're, uh, you know, actively attempting to flee, uh, and not engaging, if they're, um, punching inanimate objects, uh, you know, punching cars and walls and, uh, fences and, and, you know, kicking things for no apparent reason. Um, the, uh, this is, uh, th- these are, these are clues to me that, that they're in that state. Um, yeah. and, uh, they often may appear fearful, um, maybe sweaty, uh, wide eyed, dilated pupils. Um, and, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, physical activity. So, uh, so they're very animated in their, in their physical activity and, and, um, you know, their attention is rapidly switching, uh, different, uh, different places. Again, these are all together as a picture. Like each one is not a, is not a, an individual indicator, but when you couple these physical findings with that mental state, then that that's what tells me that, that they're in this this particular state and a potentially life threatening one. Yeah, and definitely it's something that you have to act safely, but you also have to act timely because the longer they're in the state, the more they're burning up that oxygen, the acidosis is building up, and all of those things, which I'm guessing is what leads to their death, is cardiac arrest. That's correct. And for folks who've been observed that, that were on monitoring when they, uh, when they went, they, you have a sudden pause in this behavior and that should worry you. If you have this person who's super agitated and then all of a sudden they're not talking anymore, then that, then you, you should be worried about them. You should be assessing them top down like this, you know, potential immediate life threat there. Um, so they're struggling and struggling and struggling and said, suddenly they stop. Um, and what we've, thought was, well, maybe they're uh, experiencing because of this, this adrenaline surge, they're experiencing this adrenaline outflow and they're getting a tachy arrhythmia like V-fib or V-tac. Um, but if folks have been monitored when they had that state, they really didn't. They just kind of braid it down uh, and, and, uh, and stop. Um, and it's uh, associated with airway uh, impingement as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that, you know, that's that that's a moment that this patient's in in dire in real danger, um, and we hear this a lot. Like when they're struggling, and they're saying, "I can't breathe," and this. And I, you know, I remember being taught this uh, as an EMT and as a paramedic, and hearing people say it, and even as doctor, like, "Well, if you can talk, you can breathe." Uh, and I think that's a really dangerous teaching um, because you know, saying "I can't breathe" doesn't mean you can't necessarily move air, but you don't know how well they're exchanging. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gas, or if what they're getting in, what they're doing is sufficient to support the level of activity that they're, uh, they're doing. So if somebody's at a maximum fight for their life, you know, if you've done jujitsu and you do the, mm-hmm. you know, fight gone bad, where you just fight like one minute hard as you possibly can, and just do that again and again and again and again, and you just gas, like you can't even lift, lift your head off the mat. Um, so, and yeah, at that time, oh, God, I can't breathe. Uh, so uh, when they're saying I can't breathe, then it doesn't mean their airways impinged, but it doesn't mean we ignore them and say, now nah, you can talk, you can breathe. No, don't blow them off. That there, there may be something to that. And unfortunately, we have several examples of that was the last thing that somebody said when they were in this situation um, and, uh, and, and then died shortly thereafter. 
Yeah. So what are we supposed to do? Like ketamine's too dangerous now. Yeah, I'm not carrying any antipsychotics. Um I really not super comfortable just giving pure sedatives, right? Like I don't carry propofol, nor do I have an IV. If they're not letting me talk to them or assess them, they're not going to let me get an IV. So like, what am I supposed to do? And that, that is the million dollar question. Whenever you're confronted with somebody with who's experiencing severe agitation, first step obviously is ensure your own safety. Uh, and uh, before you, uh, before you engage with them, be circumspect, have, uh, have a plan uh, before you, you lay hands on somebody and, and, uh, and have to get involved with a restraint or something like that. Um, now, uh, the, the person who is that severely agitated, this is a behavioral emergency. It requires medical treatment. Okay. It's not appropriate to let somebody just remain severely agitated. Now, whether they're agitated enough that they would meet this, um, hyperactive delirium with severe agitation, which is the term that uh, ASEP is now uh, is now supporting. And I think actually the American College of Toxico Medical Toxicologists also um, have have supported the use of this. Um, but first in your mind, describe the behavior. Uh, you know, what it is, what is it that they're doing? Um, and can you engage with them? I, I'm uh, always uh, always a fan of just talking to somebody and to, to get them to redirect them and get them into a place where, where they can they can uh, uh, interact and maybe we can avoid uh, having to do that restraint. If you're uh, dealing with somebody that you can redirect, then great. You know, right there, we probably don't have to sedate them completely. We don't have to knock them out, uh, no matter what we do. Now, that's not to say they don't necessitate treatment. Like somebody's severely agitated, or somebody's agitated, maybe not severely agitated, but they're they're agitated. They're really anxious. Then they they could probably benefit from some medical therapy, some medical treatment. But we don't have to necessarily dissociate them. We don't have to knock them out totally. Um, if you can't engage, they're violent, they're immediate danger to themselves or somebody else, then, okay, I need to, uh, I need to do something. Assess as much as you possibly can. Uh, now with that said, if you have somebody who's fighting, uh, everybody that, that lays hands on them, um, that they're in that maximal fight as you're trying to assess them, but their, your assessment is going to be incomplete. It's not going to be very good. Like even getting an oxygen level on, on these folks is difficult as you put the pulse ox in their finger and they're just, you know, doing this and they're getting the pulse ox out. They don't want it on there. Um, getting a pulse rate. Yes. Um, can you get an end tidal CO2? It depends if you can restrain them enough that you can get a cannula on them, but that, that too can be very, very difficult. Um, but assess as much as you can visually. Assess, you know, uh, what what kind of things are they saying? What are they sweating? Uh, are they moving a lot? Is there any part of their body that they're not moving? That uh, is uh, that they're hey, it's really weird. They're not moving the right side of their body or some, something like that. Is there any immediately um, immediately evident injuries that you see? A big gash on their head, big goose egg, something like that. Now, the presence of an injury does not obviate the need for sedation. Again, mm -hmm. we see this with trauma patients all the time that come in, they're agitated, and sometimes they're really drunk and, and so forth, and they have injuries. We still have to sedate them in order to facilitate treatment. Um, but uh, first off, get some sort of an assessment. Document what you have, even if most of what you're getting is a visual assessment, an auditory assessment, and not uh, not as reliably a hands-on assessment. Um, second, have a plan. 
And if uh, whatever your protocol is, um, if you determine that sedation is appropriate for this patient, it's very important that, that we know that in a hospital setting and in an out of hospital setting, that sedation is not a benign procedure entirely. And you have to uh, have a plan for the potential downsides of that. Now, of the different uh, medications that we have for sedating the severely agitated patient, uh, ketamine is one that's very, very common. And, and why do we like ketamine? Because it has an extremely wide therapeutic index. It's very safe in large doses. Now, the, the, in the McLean case, there's folks who said, well, they overdosed the patient because they gave a 65-kilogram man 500 milligrams of intramuscular ketamine. The, the typical recommended dose is four to five milligrams per kilogram. In Mr. McLean, this worked out to about seven milligrams per kilogram. But the in the 1970s, it was pretty routine to give seven to 15 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine intramuscularly uh, for uh, for sedation, for surgery, and that's so much higher than the doses that are that are advocated for now. And that was routine, and that was considered uh, that was considered pretty safe. Um, and systematic review of that didn't find a significant difference in adverse event. Uh, profiles between that, that higher dosing and that lower dosing. Um, because ketamine is, it, unlike other sedative hypnotics, when you're talking a benzodiazepine or an opiate or something like that, um, or even propofol, you have this linear dose response curve, right? So the more you give, the more unconscious somebody gets, and then eventually they're not, they're not breathing. They're on a surgical plane. Um, there they are. Ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic, so you you give it it, it, um, it it's a NMDA receptor agonist, it's a mu opioid receptor agonist, uh, so it helps with pain. But it, it ultimately, once you hit that dissociative dose, it disconnects the thinking parts from the doing parts, and more ketamine at that point is not going to worsen that. It's not going to increase the likelihood of. Um, apnea or airway uh, compromise or anything like that. It's just going to make them sedated for longer. Um, so the, now ketamine, when given, and, and I'm going to put a caution in here, it usually doesn't knock out your breathing. It uh -huh. usually doesn't cause hypotension. It, it can cause a little, it, it, it's a catecholamine reuptake inhibitor. So when your natural epinephrine, norepinephrine, that's being released, it keeps it from being pulled back in. So that's why you get a bump in the heart rate, a bump in the blood pressure when you give ketamine. I say usually, because when you give ketamine, it can sometimes cause apnea and it can cause mm -hmm. brief apnea. And it, when you're dealing with a patient who's potentially critically ill here that is in this acidotic state, they've been, you know, they've been fighting, the lactic acid is going up, they're, um, they're going into rhabdo. You know, there are several metabolic derangements that are occurring to that patient simultaneously. You can potentially get apnea when you, when you uh, sedate them with ketamine. So always have that in mind when, when you're giving. It's not something you just like bang and walk away. Um, right. And... This is something that, that we've seen in several of these cases where a, a patient got some ketamine and then, okay, whew, okay, the ketamine's worked. We relax. Now I'm going to go get my stretcher. Now I'm going to go get this. And, and the only folks left watching the patient are the cops. And they're not medical providers. It's, you know, it's not what they're there for. Um, and uh, really, anytime you're going to sedate somebody, you got to have a medical provider eyes on monitoring them continuously. Yeah, uh, and that's especially in the early 
stages of a sedation, that is not the time to walk away from the patient. Yeah. And why do we like this ketamine? Because of those things I just said, but also because it works really fast. Nothing else works as quickly, especially intramuscularly, as ketamine does. And that's what makes it uh, a safer drug to use in, in these patients. It, it, as you identified, somebody's fighting you. It's really hard to get an, an IV in them uh, to, to, to do that well. Um, and, uh, so an intramuscular dose, it, it works within a couple of minutes, uh, and, uh, gains rapid sedation and great. Now they're in that state. They're, they're in that more sedated state. They're not fighting you. This is the time to reassess them. Mm-hmm. Um, now other drugs like benzodiazepines. So if you're talking midazolam or Versed, uh, lorazepam or Ativan, diazepam, Valium, uh, these kinds of drugs, also really good for agitation. They're great drugs for treating agitation. The downside is that they take longer to work. So if you're going to give an intramuscular dose of those medications, it may be 10, 15 minutes before they're getting to that that peak effect where you want to. In the meantime, the patient's agitated, they're fighting and so forth. You know, oh, should I give more? Should I give more? I'm going to give more, give more, give more, give more. And I'll go, now, they're on a surgical plane, right? We've we've pushed them into apnea. Now we've got to control their airway. Antipsychotic drugs. Uh, the, so the typical older ones like haloperidol or haldol, uh, droperidol or napsine, um, and uh, um, uh, even like thorazine. You know, you know an, an oldie but goodie. Uh, they take a long time to really work. You know, 15, 20 minutes, even thirty minutes uh, for peak effect. Again, for a person who's agitated, and especially from a mental health issue like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, uh, they, they're indicated, they're, they're good to have. But in that violently, severely agitated patient, then they're not going to work in, in a as, as short a time frame as ketamine is going to. So among all of these choices that we have, ketamine really is the safest choice that we have. But it, it, it's it's not 100% safe, and we have to be thoughtful when we're using this. So if we're expecting apnea when we're sedating somebody like that, when you know, okay, I'm going to drop the ketamine, I'm going to give it to them. Um, I'm going to have my cardiac monitor there. I'm going to have my oxygen monitor there. I'm going to have my end tidal monitor, and I'm going to have an NPA and an OPA and a bag valve mask out and ready to go. And my team is going to be briefed on this, like, okay, I'm going to sedate them. But like as soon as, as soon as they're going down, we're going to be evaluating that airway. We're going to be evaluating that uh, breathing. And typically, if you do see uh, apnea with ketamine, it's brief, and it's that in that within that first minute that uh, that it's administered. Uh, so. I'm going to be prepared for that right then. What I don't want to do is hit them with ketamine and say, oh, yeah, they're not breathing. Now I have to go back and get my bag out of the truck. I've got to go my get my monitor out of the truck. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, what are we what are we doing for that patient? Yeah, I think the second take home is that when you have a sudden change in the patient's status, they suddenly become unconscious. Even if that's a change that was intentional, that you caused because you hit them with a sedative, then that's a patient that you immediately f- assess fully, that you assess their breathing, you assess their pulse, their their airway. Uh, because if they did that spontaneously in front of us, the, the, yeah, no question, we're, we'd, be, we'd be checking that stuff right away. Uh, if we're giving a drug and knocking them out, we should be doing taking that very same all hands approach of making sure that their ventilation status is supported and uh, and they're good and, and hopefully we can prevent some of these outcomes that happen when 
somebody's hit with a sedative and then they're they're out and then they're not breathing. It takes us long enough to to support that that then they go into cardiac arrest and and then it's a uh, it's a catastrophic outcome for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would consider this a, a procedure like a chest tube or any other major procedure. You're going to have your your whole mismade set up, ready to go before uh, you even start. Before you push the nar- push the, your narcotics, really whichever narcotic you decided to ch- to take, um, you have to have your essentially your safety net set up. Like I'm giving a very large dose of ketamine, even though ketamine is as safe as you know water. Um, everything has a consequence to it. And, you know, as a medical provider, at whatever level you are, you should know there's a consequence to to anything. And if I'm going to sedate somebody on purpose, I know a consequence of that is their breathing may be affected. I need to be able to intervene or they may become hypotensive. I need to be able to intervene. Um, I mean, that's just good medicine. Right. Even though it's even though I'm in a very stressful, a very dynamic situation. That doesn't alleviate the responsibility to be prepared for the consequences of something you're getting ready to do. And I remember being taught this when it comes to taking when um, police officers are taking somebody into custody. We're not talking about the we're not talking about excited delirium or or agitation. We're talking about just normally when you're arresting somebody Mm -hmm. that once the cuffs are on, the police officer's stress level is immediately dropping. Like, okay, I've got him. I've got him in custody. Well, meanwhile, that arrestee's stress level is increasing, and that's when they're coming up with a plan for escape. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, and and that's a really dangerous intersection there. And I think, too, when we sedate somebody that's in that state, I mean, here we've been, you know, working to restrain them and and try to prevent them from hurting themselves and prevent them from hurting us. And we we hit them with a sedative, and then they're knocked out. And it's like, whew, okay, my stress level is going down. It shouldn't be. My stress level should stay up here. And you should be vigilant. Like as soon as they are, as soon as they're going down, great. I'm taking this opportunity, getting that pulse ox on, getting that monitor on. If I wasn't able to apply those before they were sedated, I'm going to do that at the immediately, the first opportunity that I can um, to, to, to monitor them. And I'm going to have continuous eyes on them. So if something needs to, if somebody needs to get the stretcher out of the truck, like, hey, that, that can be somebody else, right? But right. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not going to have the both the medics go get the truck, uh, go get the stretcher, uh, while nobody but the police are watching the patient. So, um, so you can cut somebody, slice somebody off. Hey, officer, would you mind helping my partner? Um, you know, grab this and and so forth. But have medical eyes continuously on that patient when they're being sedated, especially in that early phase of sedation that is just just a dangerous dangerous time is there another piece of this which is the person has been agitated they've been you know moving around and 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 uh and fighting and so forth and they've been fighting to breathe and finally maintaining their airway and now we've taken away that stimulation and they relax and they stop and so they they stop breathing. We see this also with procedural sedation. If somebody with a broken leg that's all out of whack, you want to reduce it. You sedate them, and that pain is to kind of keeping them a little bit stimulated to where they breathe and so forth. And then you reduce it, and you take that pain away, and then oh, they relax, and then then they become happy. 
And then again, right. as providers, cool, procedure's done. Stress level's dropping. No, stress level needs to stay up here. Yep, absolutely. And I mean, all of these things are just take, taking into account that you got the dose right. Right? Now, if you overestimate their weight, which, of course, any kind of medical school, we have a calibrated eye that can uh, weigh people. But, um, you know, sometimes you get it wrong, you know. Uh, like the old adage, you know, in the military, everybody weighs 100 kilograms. Well, obviously that is not true. And <laughs> if you do all your math based on something like that, yeah, you're going, that's your plan. You're going to execute your plan. And you still, the, the consequences are even, like there's a higher risk for those consequences because you've over, I wouldn't say overdosed, like you haven't achieved, like in the McLean case, they didn't achieve like the lethal LD50 dose of ketamine. So it's not the overdose or lethal dose for that. They just overestimated uh, for his weight. And so they overshot just a bit and wasn't prepared for the consequences of just that alone. You know, just like you mentioned, you know, reducing a shoulder or reducing a joint dislocation. You, know, you dosed them up here because their pain was up here, and now you popped it back in place. Now their pain is down here, but their dosing is still up here because the drug hasn't worn off yet. So essentially, you've overdosed them, and now you have to play this game. So well, I think all the way around, just preparation, just having a good plan, having a good safety net in as part of your plan so that... If something were to go wrong, which I just always assume something horrible is going to happen, and so I'm just generally ready for those things, um, you know, in your kit. It's not like you mentioned; it's not in the truck. It's not in. It's not with Steve running around. Um, it's right here next to me. All right, now let's engage and do the procedure. Well, especially if you have a, a decent sized medical team, if you have a few providers, then then assign those roles. So here, uh, okay, I'm going to draw up the medication and give it to them. I'm, I'm going to have you on airway. So you've got an OPA and NPA and you've got the bag valve mask if you need ju uh, to jump in. And uh, you over here, you're going to have you're going to have that monitor. So as soon as physically possible, we're going to get uh, we get them um, on there and then I'm you're going to rapidly again do my head to toe and so forth. So slicing off those various tasks to to other people and taking that team approach will help to to prevent that bad outcome. Um, when it comes to selection of your uh, your adjuncts, whether when you're sedating somebody, again, the clinical presentation matters a lot, right? If they're if they're not violently agitated, then then ketamine is probably not the right choice for that patient. Um, but if they are, uh, then it's it, ketamine is more forgiving because it has such a wide therapeutic index. Yeah. Uh, and some folks say you really can't overdose somebody with ketamine. I, I don't know if I believe that. I mean, I'm sure there's a number eventually you get mm -hmm. to it. Um, but really, it has such an incredibly wide therapeutic index that it is forgiving of those mistakes when it comes to estimation uh, of weight. And yeah. the patient who is... Uh, who's violently struggling always seem they they seem bigger than they are. You know, had that in judo class, and you know, find something like, "What are you two forty, two fifty? And I'm like, "Oh, well, fuck you!" Uh, first of <laughs> all, you know, but it, it you know feels that way. I thought for you know somebody who's 160 pounds and tied me into a knot, and yep. I'm like, "Okay," and, you know they 
that they, uh, so being aware of the fact that we may overestimate them, uh, yep. that, um, that, that it, to be, to be mindful of that when we are, uh, selecting our dosing, you know, can be helpful. Yep. Um, I, but I think that, you know, unfortunately the, 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 the McLean case and, and others like it, we've seen this where ketamine has been effectively outlawed for pre-hospital use in Colorado. And I think that is ultimately to the detriment of so many patients there, uh, because it, there are times it really is the most appropriate and, and safest choice, uh, in dealing with critically ill patients. And, um, I, you know, also making folks less likely to engage, less wanting yep. to engage. Uh, and I read an article, and I, this this article made me so angry when I read it. And it was actually in um, it was on uh, in Gems magazine, and it was a it was an opinion piece saying that well, the medics should have just walked away. And um, uh, well, well, no, you can't. Like you know, this is yeah. a patient, and that, that comes down to protocols. How do you define a patient? But um, if you've got somebody that you reasonably believe, reasonably believe is suffering a medical emergency or has been in an incident which leads you to believe that a, a person could suffer injury, then uh, or if they've asked for help uh, or somebody with direct knowledge of them has asked for help, then they're a patient. Um, the medics do not have the choice to walk away. The, the police called for help and they called for the medics not to help get him into custody. I think I think this is this myth that police are having medics sedate people so they can take them to jail and nobody gets ketamine and goes to jail period like that's not it's not how that works um but they recognized that this may be a medical emergency those medics they had a duty to act they had a duty to evaluate and uh potentially treat the patient uh and so i i don't think that it's a reasonable thing for us to say yeah we can just walk away um, right. because if a reasonable layperson sees see somebody like we're going down the street naked and bloody and smashing in windows and doing all this stuff that prudent layperson look and say, they look like they may have a medical emergency and uh, maybe a mental health emergency or uh, something like that. That's a patient. We as medical providers have a responsibility to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what really, what is the alternative, right? I mean, so providing, some guys going, you know, some guys doing his death blossom in the freaking middle of the street, spraying blood everywhere, and the paramedics are just watching it. Like, that's not a good look. Um, the paramedics are like, I don't want to deal with this. Let the cops do it. Well, what are their options? Let's, we're going to beat him with a stick until he stops moving. That's right. also not going to be a good look either, you know? Or we just let this guy burn out. Well, now he's next to dead. So, um, you know, which, which uh, you know, crap sandwich do you want to take a bite out of, you know? So oh. I think just knowledge and training and just preparation, I think, are probably the best answers for this type of situation. And there have been some folks who've, who've proposed that, um, that police not be involved, like, well, it's a, it's a mental health thing. It shouldn't be the cops that they're involved in. And, and if, if the person is just like suicidal or anxious or something like that, then I, I agree. Law enforcement is not the right resource for that, uh, for that patient. But if somebody's violently agitated, police have the broadest selection of tools and the greatest training for how to physically restrain a person, how to physically, uh, how, to, how to gain physical control of them. 
more so than we do as as medical providers. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that is reasonable to expect that police will not be part of uh, of dealing with these patients. Uh, I and again, I applaud law enforcement because they really are recognizing that um, that they have a role in this, but this is a treatment of a medical problem. And uh, and what they bring to that encounter is they have a continuum of various techniques that most of us don't have that may be effective in safely uh, gaining physical control of somebody so that they can be treated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? Well, um, I... Hmm. Hmm. I think we've touched on. Um, I think we've touched on most of it. You always cut that out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'd, uh, I'd say that um, this is these cases are going to get more scrutiny uh, yeah. as time goes on. We are seeing this criminalization of medical care. We've saw, seen this in the Elijah McClain case. We've seen saw that in the Ladonda Vaught case, um, at uh, uh, where a nurse uh, mistakenly administered a paralytic uh, to a patient uh, unknowingly, and the patient died. Um, so, uh, my concern is that we're going to see this criminalization of what is effectively medical malpractice, and so that makes it so much more important that we, as medical providers, that we enter into these that our, our intentions are honorable when we are uh, dealing with these patients and keeping in mind that this is uh, this is a patient, not a problem, that this is a uh, that this is a person that is deserving of our skill and that um, that it, let's not let's not go home wishing that I'd done this differently. Let me go home even if things didn't work out well that I had the noblest intention and, and best intent to do the best that I could to help that person. Uh, and uh, I know some, sometimes things are not going to go well. We're going to have undesirable outcomes. But if I can say at the end of the day, I did these things and prepared for the worst as best as I could, then that's it for today. Hopefully, sorry about that. <laughs> is that the hook? That's it. There we go. Oh, I'm gone. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> no. So yeah, that's a, uh, but yeah, no, all right. Point, point well taken. <laughs> Ramble. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, just we we need to, we need to approach these patients honorably. We have to understand that that um, uh, I, I don't think this this issue of criminalization is going away. Uh, I think yeah. that, um, and uh, it, it's a, it's an unfortunate trend because it's going to drive people away from the medical field, and it's people less likely and less willing to. Uh, engage when there are high risks, uh, and that will absolutely be a detriment to patients. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we see it with other professions and, you know, pre-hospital and potentially even hospital care, I think, is going to suffer with this kind of scrutiny. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. Well, Thank you for making me depressed. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm sorry to sadden you. Uh, so, uh, uh, the good thing you, is, uh, the good thing is, I'm in the military no. and you can't sue me. So, um. <laughs> uh, so well, as long as it's within the scope of your duties. <laughs> so, uh, cool. Thanks so much for having me on here again. I really enjoy talking with you. I appreciate it.
That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.